Part Two, Chapter Seven of The Gambler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. Chapter Seven. And thus it came about that Clodagh Ashland entered upon a new phase of that precarious condition that we call life. The impulse that had induced her to accept Milbank's proposal was in no way complex. The knowledge had suddenly been conveyed to her that, through no act of her own, she had been placed under a deep obligation, and her primary, her inherited instinct, had been to pay her debt as speedily and as fully as lay within her power, ignoring in her lack of worldly wisdom the fact that such a bargain must of necessity possess obligations other than personal which would demand subsequent settlement. However unversed she may be in the world's ways, it is scarcely to be supposed that any young girl, under normal conditions, can look upon her own marriage as an abstract thing. But the circumstances of Clodagh's case were essentially abnormal. Milbank's proposal, and the facts that brought her to accept it, came at a time when her mind and her emotions were numbed by her first poignant encounter with death and grief, and for the time being her outlook upon existence was clouded. The present seemed something somber, desolate, and impalpable, the future something absolutely void. For two days after the scene in the glen she and Milbank avoided all allusion to what had taken place between them. He appeared possessed by an insurmountable nervous reticence, while she, immersed in her trouble, seemed almost to have forgotten what had occurred. On the evening of the third day, however, the subject was again broached. Milbank was sitting by one of the long dining-room tables, reading by the faint twilight that filtered in from the fast-darkening sky. The light in the room was fitful, for though the table was already laid for dinner, the candles had not yet been lighted. With his book held close to his eyes he had been reading studiously for close upon an hour when the quick opening of the door behind him caused him to look round. As he did so he closed his book somewhat hastily and rose with a slight gesture of embarrassment, for the disturber of his peace was Clodagh. But it was not so much the fact of her entry that startled him as the fact that, for the first time since her father's death, she was arrayed in her riding habit. Shaken out of his calm, he turned to her at once. "'Are you are you going for a ride?' he asked in unconcealed surprise. Clodagh nodded. She was drawing on her thick chamois gloves, and her riding crop was held under her arm. Had the light in the room been stronger, he would have seen that her lips were firmly set and her eyes bright with resolution. But his mind was absorbed by his surprise. But is it not rather late? he hazarded anxiously, with a glance towards the window. She looked up, astonished. Late? she repeated incredulously. Then the look of faintly contemptuous tolerance that sometimes touched her with regard to him passed over her face. Oh, no, not at all, she explained. I'm used to riding in the evening. You see, Polly must be exercised, and I'd rather it was dark the first time I rode after... Her voice faltered. Milbank heard the tremor, and, as once before, his sense of personal timidity fled before his spontaneous pity. Clodagh, he said suddenly, 
allow me to ride with you. I was a fairly good horseman in—in in my day. There was pathos in the deprecating justification, but Clodagh's attention was caught by the words alone. You, she said in blank amazement. Then something in the crudeness of her tone struck upon her, and she made haste to amend her exclamation. Of course it's very, very kind of you, she added awkwardly. At her lowered tone, Milbank colored and took a step forward. Clodagh, he began, with a flash of courage, I think you might allow me to be more kind to you than you do. I think I might give you more protection. And it has occurred to me that perhaps we ought to announce our, our engagement. He halted nervously. As soon as he had begun to speak, Clodagh had walked away from him across the room, and now she stood by the mantelpiece looking down steadily into the fire. "'Do you agree with me?' he asked, moving nervously towards her. There was an embarrassed silence, and in his perturbation he glanced from her bent head to the picture above the chimney-piece, from which Anthony Ashland's ardent face showed out a vague patch of color against its black background. "'Clodagh,' he said suddenly, allow me to tell Mrs. Ashland that you have promised to marry me. But Clodagh did not answer. Still she stood gazing enigmatically into the burning logs, her slight figure and warm youthful face fitfully lighted by the capricious spurting flames. Clodagh! he exclaimed, and there was a note of uneasiness in his low deprecating voice. Then at last she turned, and their eyes met. Very well, she said quietly, you may tell Aunt Fan but if you don't mind I'll ride by myself. That night, at the conclusion of dinner, the engagement was announced. All the members of the Ashland family were seated round the table when Milbank, who had practically eaten nothing during the meal, summoned his wavering courage and leaned across the table towards Mrs. Ashland, who was sitting at his right hand. "'Mrs. Ashland,' he began almost inaudibly, "'I, that is, Clodagh and I,' He glanced timidly to where Clodagh sat erect and immovable at the head of the table. Clodagh and I have, have an announcement to make. We, that is, I, he stammered hopelessly. Mrs. Ashland, Clodagh has made me very, very proud and very happy. She has consented to, to be my wife. He took a deep, agitated breath of wordless relief that the confession was made. There was a long pause. Then suddenly Mrs. Ashland extended both hands toward him in an hysterical outburst of feeling. "'My dear, dear Mr. Milbank,' she said, "'what a shock! What a surprise, I should say! What would my poor brother-in-law have thought? But Providence ordains everything. I'm sure I congratulate you. Congratulate you both!' She turned to Clodagh. "'Though, of course, it is not the time for congratulations.' She hastily drew out her handkerchief. As she did so, little Nance rose slowly from table and slipped unobserved from the room. At Milbank's words the child's face had turned terribly white, and she had cast an appealing, incredulous look at Clodagh. But Clodagh, in her self-imposed stolidity, had seen nothing of the expressions round her, and now, as her sister left her place and crossed the room, the significance of the action went unnoticed. For a moment the only sound audible in the room was the crackling of the fire and Mrs. Ashland's muffled weeping, but at last Milbank, agonized into action, put out his hand and touched her arm. 
"'Please do not give way to your feelings, Mrs. Ashland,' he urged. "'Think. Think of Clodagh.' Thus appealed to, Mrs. Ashland wiped away the half-dozen tears that had trickled down her cheek. "'You must forgive me,' she murmured. "'We Irish take things too much to heart. It, it brought my own engagement back to me, and, of course, my poor Lawrence's death. I hope indeed that it will be a very long time before Clodagh.' But the words were broken by a clatter from the other side of the table, as young Lawrence Ashland opportunely knocked one wine-glass against another, and in the moment of interruption Clodagh pushed back her chair and stood up. "'If you don't mind, Anne Fan,' she said, "'I think I'll go to bed. The, the ride has tired me. Good night.' And without a glance at anyone she walked out of the room. But she had scarcely crossed the hall when a step behind her caused her to pause, and looking back she saw the figure of her cousin a pace or two in the rear. In the half-light of the place the two confronted each other, and Clodagh lifted her head in a movement that was common to them both. "'What do you want?' she asked. Ashland stepped forward. "'Tisn't true, Clo,' he asked breathlessly. Clodagh looked at him defiantly and nodded. "'Yes,' she said, "'tis true.' For a moment he stared at her incredulously, then his incredulity drove him to speech. "'But Clo,' he cried, "'he's sixty, if he's a day, and you!' Clodagh flushed. "'Stop, Larry,' she said unevenly. "'Father was nearly sixty. But Ashland's sense of the fitness of things had been aroused. "'That's all very well,' he cried. "'Uncle Dennis was all right for a father or an uncle. But to marry! Clo, you're mad!' Clodagh turned upon him. "'How dare you, Larry!' she cried. "'You are horrible! I hate you!' Her voice caught, and with a sudden passionate gesture she wheeled away from him and began to mount the stairs. The action sobered him. With impetuous remorse he thrust out his hand to detain her. "'Clo!' he said. "'I say, Clo!' But she swept his hand aside. "'No, no!' she exclaimed. "'I don't want you! I don't want you! I never want to speak to you again! You are hateful! Detestable!' With a swift movement she pushed past his outstretched arm and flew up the stairs. In her bedroom Hannah was hovering about between the washstand and dressing-table, a lighted candle in one hand, a carafe of water in the other. At the sight of her mistress she laid both her burdens down with a cry of delight. "'My darling!' she exclaimed. "'And is it true? Tim heard the word of it, and he carrying the cheese out of the dining-room, but sure I wouldn't believe him.' but Clodagh checked her. "'Don't be a fool, Hannah!' she cried almost fiercely, and turning her face from the old servant's scrutinizing eyes, she walked across the room towards the bed. For a moment Hannah stood like an ungainly statue. Then she nodded to herself, a nod of profound and silent wisdom, and tiptoeing out of the room closed the door behind her. Instantly she was alone, Clodagh began to undress. With hysterical impetuosity she tore off each garment and threw it untidily upon the floor. Then, slipping into bed, she buried her hot face in the pillows and burst into a violent, unreasoning torrent of tears. For ten minutes she cried unceasingly. Then the storm of her misery was checked. The door-handle was very softly turned, and little Nance stole into the room. She entered eagerly, then paused, frightened by the scene before her, but her hesitation was very brief. 
With a sudden movement of resolution she sped across the space that divided her from the bed and laid a cold, tremulous hand on Clodagh's shoulder. "'Flo,' she said, "'is it true? Are you going to marry him? Are you going away from here?' Her voice sounded thin and far away. Clodagh raised herself on one elbow and looked at her sister. Her face was flushed, her eyes were preternaturally bright. "'Why do you want to know?' she demanded angrily. "'Why is everybody bothering me like this? Can't I do what I like? Can't I marry if I like?' Her voice rose excitedly. Then suddenly she caught sight of Nance's quivering, wistful little face, and her anger melted. With a warm, quick movement she held out her arms. "'Nance!' she cried wildly. "'Little Nance! The only person in the world that I really love!' End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 That night Clodagh fell asleep with her wet cheek pressed against her sister's and her arms clasped closely round her. Next morning she woke calmed and soothed by her outburst of the night before, and after breakfast she was able to enter into the primary discussion concerning her marriage without any show of emotion. The conclave at which she, her aunt, and Milbank alone were present took place in the drawing-room and was of a weighty and solemn character. The first suggestion was put forward by Mrs. Ashland, who, with the native distaste for all hurried and definite action, pleaded that an engagement of six months at least would be demanded by the conventionalities before a marriage could take place. But here, to the surprise of his listeners, Milbank displayed a fresh gleam of the determination and firmness that had inspired him during the days of sickness and death. With a reasonableness that could not be gainsaid, he refuted and disposed of Mrs. Ashland's arguments, and with a daring born of his new position made the startling proposal that the wedding ceremony should be performed within the shortest possible time, and that to obviate all difficulties Clodagh and he should leave Ireland immediately, journeying to Italy to take up their residence in the villa that he had already rented at Florence for his own use. Immediately the suggestion was made, Mrs. Ashland broke forth in irresistible objection. "'Oh, but what would people say?' she cried. "'Think of what people would say with the funeral scarcely over.' Milbank looked at her gravely. His matter-of-fact mind was as far as ever from comprehending the ramifications of the Irish character. "'But, my dear Mrs. Ashland,' he urged, "'do you think we need really consider whether people talk or not?' surely we who knew and loved poor dennis oh it isn't that no one knows better than i do what a friend you have been milbank stirred uncomfortably please do not speak of it i-i did no more than any christian would have done what i mean to suggest but again she interrupted yes yes i know but we must consider the county we must consider the county but here clodagh who was standing by the window turned swiftly round. "'Why must we?' she asked. "'The county never remembered father till he was dead. If I'm going to be married it's all the same to me whether it's in three weeks, or three months, or three years.' Milbank colored, not quite sure whether the declaration was propitious or the reverse. "'Certainly, certainly,' he broke in nervously. "'I think your view is a, a very sensible one.' Mrs. Ashland shook her head in speechless disapproval. "'And what is to become of Nance?' she asked after a moment's pause. Again 
Milbank glanced uncertainly at Clodagh. "'My idea,' he began deprecatingly, "'was to place the child at a good English school. But for the first year or two I think that perhaps Clodagh might be allowed to veto any arrangement I may make.' Clodagh stepped forward suddenly and impulsively. "'Do you mean that?' she asked. He bent his head gravely. "'Then then let us take her with us to Florence. Twould make me happier than anything under the sun.' The words were followed by a slightly dismayed pause. Although he strove bravely to conceal the fact, Milbank's face fell, and Mrs. Ashland became newly and marketedly shocked. "'My dear Clodagh,' she began sternly, but Milbank put up his hand. "'Pray say nothing, Mrs. Ashland,' he broke in gently. "'Clodagh's wishes are mine.' The blood surged into Clodagh's face in a wake of spontaneous relief. "'You mean that?' she said again. Once more he bent his head. "'Then I'll marry you any time you like,' she said with a sudden impulsive warmth. And in due time the day of the marriage dawned. After careful consideration every detail had been arranged and all difficulties smoothed away. The ceremony was to take place in a small unpretentious Protestant church at Carrigmoor, where Sunday after Sunday, since the days of her early childhood, Clodagh had listened to the word of God and had sent up her own immature supplications to heaven. The marriage, which of necessity was to be of the most private nature, was fixed for the forenoon, and it had been arranged that immediately upon its conclusion Clodagh, Nance, and Milbank should repair to Mrs. Ashland's cottage, from which, having partaken of lunch, they were to start upon their journey without returning to Oristown. The wedding morning broke grey and mild, presaging a typical Irish day. After a night of broken and restless sleep, Clodagh woke at six, and slipped out of bed without disturbing Nance. For the first moment or two she sat on the side of her bed, her hands locked behind her head, her bare feet resting upon the uncarpeted floor. Then suddenly the sight of the long cardboard box that had arrived from Dublin the day before, containing the new grey dress in which she was to be married, roused her to the significance of the hour. With a swift movement she rose and crossed the room to the window. The view across the bay was neutral and calm. Over the sea to the east a pale and silvery sun was emerging from a film of mist, while on the water itself a white, almost spiritual radiance lay like a mystic veil. Clodagh took one long, comprehensive glance at the familiar scene. Then, as if afraid to trust herself too far, she turned away quickly and began to dress with noiseless haste. Twenty minutes later she crept downstairs, arrayed in her old black riding habit. Where she rode on that morning of her marriage, what strange and speculative thoughts burned in her brain, and what secrets, regretful or anticipatory, she whispered into Polly's sensitive ears, no one ever knew. At half-past eight she re-entered the stable-yard, slipped from the saddle unaided, and threw the mare's bridle to Bert. For a full minute she stood with her gloved hand upon the neck of the animal that had carried her so often and so well. Then, with a sudden, almost furtive movement, she bent forward and pressed her face against the cropped mane. "'Take care of her, Tim,' she said unsteadily. "'Take care of her. I'll come back some day, you know.' And without looking at the old man, 
she turned and walked out of the yard. She met no one on her way to the house, but as she passed across the hall she was suddenly arrested by the sight of Millbank descending the stairs, already arrayed in a conventional frock coat. Unconsciously she paused. From the first she had vaguely understood that he would discard his usual serge suit on the day of the wedding, but the actual sight of these unfamiliar clothes came as a shock, bringing home to her the imminence of the great event as nothing else could possibly have done. He looked unusually old, thin, and precise in the stiff, well-cut garments, a circumstance that was unkindly enhanced by the fact that he was palpably and uncontrollably nervous. There was a moment of embarrassed silence. Then, mastering her emotions, Clodagh advanced to the foot of the stairs, holding out her hand. He responded to the gesture with something like gratitude. "'You have been out early,' he said hurriedly. "'Have you been taking a last look round?' Clodagh nodded and turned aside. The pain of her recent farewell still burned in her eyes and throat. He saw and interpreted the action. "'Don't take it to heart, my dear,' he said quickly. "'You shall return whenever you like, and, and it will be my proud privilege to know that you will always find everything in readiness for you.' Clodagh's head drooped. "'You are very good,' she said in a low mechanical voice. For a space Milbank made no response. Then suddenly his fingers tightened nervously over the hand he was still holding. "'Clodagh,' he said anxiously, "'you do not regret anything? You know it is not too late, even now.' Clodagh glanced up, and for one instant a sudden light leapt into her eyes. The next her lashes had drooped again. "'No,' she said. "'I regret nothing.' Milbank's fingers tightened spasmodically. "'God bless you,' he said tremulously, and leaning forward suddenly he pressed his thin lips to her forehead. The hours that followed breakfast and saw the departure from Oristown were too filled with haste and confusion to make any deep impression upon Clodagh's mind. The last frenzied packing of things that had been overlooked the innumerable farewells, all more or less harassing, the scramble to be dressed, and the entering of the musty old barouche that had done duty upon great occasions in the Ashland family for close upon a half-century, were all hopelessly and mercifully confused. Even the drive to Carrigmore with her aunt and sister filled her with a sense of dazed unreality. She sat very straight and stiff in the new grey dress, one hand clasped tenaciously round Nance's warm fingers, the other holding the cold and unfamiliar ivory prayer-book that had been one of Milbank's gifts. It was only when at last the carriage drew up before the little church, and she passed to the open gateway between two knots of gaping and whispering villagers, that she realized with any vividness the inevitable nature of the moment. As she walked up the narrow path to the church door, she turned suddenly to her little sister. "'Nance,' she said breathlessly. But the time for speech was past. As Nance raised a questioning, excited face to hers, Mrs. Ashland hurried after them across the grass, and together the three entered the church. A moment later Clodagh saw with a faint sense of perturbation that the building was not empty. In a shadowy corner close to the altar-rails Millbank was talking in nervous whispers to the rector who was to perform the ceremony. 
A few minutes later the little party was conducted up the aisle with the usual murmur of voices and rustle of garments, and in what seemed an incredibly, a preposterously short space of time, the service had begun. During the first portion of it Clodagh's eyes never left the brown, clean-shaven, benevolent face of the rector. Try as she might, she could not realize that the serious words pouring forth in the voice that a lifetime had rendered familiar could be meant for her who, until the day of her father's accident, had never personally understood that life held any serious responsibilities. It was only when the first solemn question was put to her, and startled out of her dream, she responded almost inaudibly that her eyes turned upon Milbank standing opposite to her, earnest, agitated, precise. For one second a sense of panic seized her. The next she had blindly extended her left hand in obedience to the rector's injunction, and felt the chill of the new gold ring as it was slipped over her third finger. After that all-important incident it seemed but a moment before the ceremony was over, and the whole party gathered together in the vestry. With a steady hand she signed her name in the register. Then instantly the act was accomplished she turned instinctively towards the spot where Nance was standing. But before she could reach her sister's side she was intercepted by Mrs. Ashland, who stepped forward, half tearful, half exultant, and embraced her effusively. "'My dear child, my dear, dear child,' she murmured disjointedly, "'may your future be very happy.' Clodagh submitted silently to the embrace. Then, as her aunt reluctantly withdrew into the background, she became conscious of the old rector's kindly presence. Looking closely into her face, he took her hand in both his own. "'God bless you, my child,' he said simply. "'I did not preach you a sermon just now, because I do not think you require one. You are a dutiful child, and I believe that you have found a very worthy husband.' At the word husband Clodagh looked up quickly. Then her eyes dropped to her wedding ring. "'Thank you,' she said almost inaudibly, and an instant later Milbank stepped forward deferentially and offered her his arm. In silence they passed down the aisle of the church, in the center of which stood the old stone font at which Clodagh had been christened, and on which she had been wont to fix her eyes during the Sunday service while the rector preached. All at once this inanimate friendly object seemed to take a new and unfamiliar air, seemed to whisper that Clodagh Ashland existed no more, and that the stranger who filled her place was an alien. Her fingers tightened nervously on her husband's arm, and her steps involuntarily quickened. Outside, in the calm, gray, misty atmosphere, they lingered for a moment by the church door in order to give Nance and Mrs. Ashland the opportunity of gaining the cottage before them. But both were ill at ease, self-conscious, and acutely anxious to curtail the enforced solitude. And it was with a sigh of relief that Clodagh saw Milbank draw out his watch as an indication that they might start. About the gate the little group of curious idlers had been augmented, and as Clodagh stepped to the carriage an irrepressible murmur of admiration passed from lip to lip, succeeded by a cold and critical silence as the bridegroom, well-bred, well-dressed, but obviously and incongruously old, followed in her wake. Clodagh comprehended and construed this chilling silence by the light of her own warm appreciation of things young, 
strong and beautiful and as she stepped hastily into the waiting carriage a flush of something like shame rose hotly to her face the drive to the cottage scarcely occupied five minutes and even had they desired it there was no time for conversation milbank sat upright and embarrassed clodagh lay back in her corner of the roomy barouche her eyes fixed resolutely upon the window her fingers tightly clasping the ivory prayer-book one fact was occupying her mind with a sense of anger and loneliness the fact that her cousin larry had not been present in the church since the night on which her engagement had been announced the feud between the cousins had continued during the weeks of preparation for the wedding larry had avoided oristown but though no overtures had been made clodagh had never doubted that he would be present at the ceremony itself and now that the excitement was past she realized with a shock of surprise that she had been openly and unmistakably deserted the thought was uppermost in her mind as the carriage stopped and when her aunt came forward to greet them her first question concerned the absent member of the family where's larry and fan she asked my dear child that's just what i have been asking myself but come in come into the house mrs ashland was fluttered by the responsibilities of the moment why wasn't he in church clodagh asked as she followed her into the narrow hall mrs ashland threw out her hands in a gesture of perplexity how can i tell she said boys are incomprehensible things i'm sure er james is not old enough to have forgotten that she glanced archly over her shoulder milbank looked intensely embarrassed and clodagh colored well we'd better not wait for larry she interposed hastily you know what a time it takes to get round to muscarie with that big barouche mrs ashland became all assiduity certainly certainly my dear child mr curry and his brother are already waiting won't you come in with hospitable excitement she marshalled them into the dining-room the room into which they were ushered though small was bright and cheerful and notwithstanding the season there were flowers upon the table and mantelpiece but even under these favorable conditions the lunch was scarcely a success mrs ashland was genuine enough in her efforts at entertainment but the guests were not in a condition to be entertained milbank was intensely nervous clodagh sat straight and rigid in her chair uncomfortably conscious of insubordinate emotions that crowded up at every added suggestion of departure even the rector's brother a bluff and hearty personage who out of old friendship for the ashland family had consented to act as best man at the hurriedly arranged wedding felt his spirits dance while little nance who sat closer to her sister made no pretense whatever at hiding the tears that kept welling into her eyes it was with universal relief that at length they rose from the table and filed out into the hall there however a new interruption awaited them in the shadow of a doorway they caught sight of hannah arrayed in her sunday bonnet and shawl and still breathless from the walk from oristown at the sight of the little party she came forward with a certain ungainly shyness but catching a glimpse of clodagh love conquered every lesser feeling let me have one last look at her she exclaimed softly that's all i'm wantin and as clodagh turned impulsively towards her she held out her arms sure i knew her before any one of ye ever set eyes on her she explained the tears running down her cheeks go on now miss ma'am she added brokenly 
pushing Clodagh forward towards the door, and turning to Millbank with an outstretched hand, "'Good-bye, sir, and God bless you.' Her sing-song voice fell, and her hard hand tightened over his. "'Take care of her,' she added, "'and don't be forgetting that she's nothing but a child still for all her fine height and her good looks.' She spoke with crude, rough earnestness, but at the last words her feelings overcame her. With another spasmodic pressure she released his fingers and, turning incontinently, disappeared into the back regions of the cottage. For a moment Millbank remained where she had left him, moved and perplexed by her hurried words. Then, suddenly remembering his duties, he crossed the hall and punctiliously offered his arm to Clodagh. "'The carriage is waiting,' he said gently. But Clodagh shook her head. "'Please take Nance first she murmured in a low, constrained voice. He acquiesced silently, and as he moved away from her she turned to Mrs. Ashland. "'Good-bye, Aunt Fan,' she said, "'and tell Larry that I'm—that I'm sorry. He'll know what it means.' Her carefully controlled voice shook suddenly as pride struggled with affection and association. Suddenly putting her arms around Mrs. Ashland's neck she kissed her thin cheek, and turning quickly walked forward to the waiting carriage. There was a moment of excitement, a spasmodic waving of handkerchiefs, the sound of a stifled sob, and the tardy throwing of a slipper. Then, with a swish of the long driving whip, the horses bounded forward, and the great lumbering carriage swung down the hill that led to the Muscarie Road. As they bowled through the village street, Clodagh shrank back into her corner, refusing to look her last on the scene that for nearly eighteen years had formed a portion of her life's horizon. The instinctive clinging to familiar things that form so integral a part of the Celtic nature was swelling in her throat and tightening about her heart. She resolutely refused to be conquered by her emotion, but the emotion, stronger for her obstinate suppression of it, threatened to dominate her. For the moment she was unconscious of Millbank, sitting opposite to her, anxious and deprecating, and she dared not permit herself to press the small warm fingers that Nance had insinuated into her own. With a lurch the carriage swept round the curve of the street and emerged onto the Muscarie Road. But scarcely had Burke gathered the reins securely into his hands, scarcely had the horses settled into a swinging trot, than the little party became suddenly aware that a check had been placed upon their progress. There was an exclamation from Burke a clatter of hoofs as the horses were hastily pulled up, and the barouche came to a halt. With a movement of surprise Clodagh turned to the open window, but on the instant there was a scuffle of paws, the sharp, eager yap of a dog, and something rough and warm thrust itself against her face. "'Mick!' she cried in breathless, incredulous rapture. Then she glanced quickly over the dog's red head to the hands that had lifted him to the carriage window. "'Larry!' she said below her breath. Young Ashland was standing in the middle of the road, red, shy, and excited. "'I want you to take him, Clo,' he said awkwardly, "'for a—for a wedding present.' For one instant Clodagh sat overwhelmed by the suggestion, and next her eyes unconsciously sought Millbank's. "'May I?' she said hesitatingly. It was her first faltering acknowledgment that her actions were no longer quite her own. Millbank started. "'Oh, assuredly,' he said, "'assuredly.' And Clodagh opened the carriage door and took Mick into her arms. 
for one moment the joy of reunion submerged every other feeling then she raised a glowing grateful face to her cousin larry she began softly but old burke leant down from his seat we'll be late for the train he announced imperturbably again milbank started nervously perhaps clodagh he began clodagh bent her head shut the door larry she said and and you were a darling to think of it ashland closed the door good-bye nance good-bye sir good-bye clo he looked bravely into the carriage but his face was still preternaturally red clodagh turned to him impulsively larry she began again but the horses started forward and the boy lifting his cap stepped back into the roadway clodagh stooped forward waved her hand unevenly then dropped back into her seat while the horses covered a quarter of a mile she sat without movement or speech but at last lifting his adoring eyes to her face mick ventured to touch her hand with a warm reminding tongue the gentle appeal of the action the hundred memories it evoked was instantaneous and supreme in a sudden irrepressible tide her grief her uncertainty of the future her homesickness inundated her soul with a quick gesture she flung away both pride and restraint and hiding her face against the dog's rough coat cried as if she had been a child end of part two part three chapter one it was nine o'clock on a morning four years after the wedding at carrickmore the season was late spring the scene was italy and florence the city of tranquillity made manifest lay at rest under its coverlet of sun and roses in the soft early light the massed buildings of the town seemed to blend together until to the dazzled eyes the arno looked like a mere ribbon of silver as it wound under its bridges and the splendid proportions of the duomo became lost in the blue haze that presaged the hot day to come the scene was vaguely beautiful viewed from any of the hills that guard the city but from no point was its soft picturesqueness more remarkable than from the terraces and windows of a villa that nestled in a curve of the narrow winding road between san domenico and fiesole this villa unlike its neighbors was long and low in structure and in addition to the stone urns luxurious flowering plants and wide painted jealousies common to italian houses it boasted other and more individual attractions to be found in a flight of singularly old marble steps that led from one level of its garden to another and in the unusual magnificence of the cypresses that grew in an imposing semicircle upon the upper terrace it was under the shade of these sombre trees that a breakfast-table stood awaiting occupation on this particular morning at the hour of nine the table in itself formed a picture for in the warm shafts of sun that slipped between the cypress trees silver and glass gleamed invitingly while in their midst an immense venetian bowl filled with roses made a patch of burning color everything was attractive refined appetizing and yet for some undiscernible reason the inmates of the villa appeared in no haste to enjoy the meal that awaited them for fully ten minutes after the coffee had been laid upon the table the italian manservant stood immovably attentive his back stiff his glance resting expectantly upon the veranda then his natural interest in the meal caused him to alter his position and cast a sympathetic eye upon the coffee in imminent danger of growing cold 
five more minutes passed. He looked again at the villa, sighed and gracefully flicked a fly from the basket of crisp rolls. Then suddenly he stood newly erect and attentive, as his quick ear caught the swish of a skirt and the sound of a light step. A moment later Clodagh emerged upon the sunny terrace, followed by her dog Mick. At any period of existence four years is a span of time to be reckoned with, but when four years serves to bridge the gulf between childhood and womanhood its power is well-nigh limitless. As Clodagh stepped through the long window of her room and came slowly out into the morning light it would have been a close observer who would at first glance have recognized the unformed girl of four years ago in the graceful, well-dressed woman moving forward through the Italian sunshine. On a second glance or third one would undoubtedly have seen the traces of the long, undeveloped limbs in the tall, supple figure, caught a suggestion of the rough, luxurious plate in the golden-brown hair coiled about the well-shaped head, and have been fascinated by numerous undeniable and haunting suggestions in contour and coloring but there memory would have hesitated. The Clodagh who had scoured the woods, scrambled over the rocks, and galloped across the lands of Oristown was no longer visible. Another being, infinitely more distinguished, infinitely more attractive, and yet vaguely deprived of some essential quality, had taken her place. In the four years that had passed since she left Ireland she had, from being a child, become a woman and below the new beauty that nature had painted upon her face lay an intangible, a poignantly suggested regret for the girlhood that had been denied her. As she stepped out upon the terrace she paused for a moment and her eyes travelled mechanically over Florence, warm, beautiful, inert. Then, with the same uninterested calm, she turned slowly towards the breakfast-table, but there her glance brightened. "'Oh, letters!' she said aloud, and with an impulsive movement she hurried forward, letting her elaborate muslin dress trail unheeded behind her. Scarcely seeing the profound bow with which the manservant greeted her, she picked up the letters and scanned them one by one. Then, as she disappointedly threw the last back upon the table, she half turned in acknowledgment of a measured step that came across the terrace from the direction of the house. At the same moment Mick pricked up his ears and slowly wagged his tail, while the Italian servant bent his body in a fresh salutation. Milbank, for his was the second step that had disturbed the silence, came forward without haste. Reaching the table he took Clodagh's left hand and pressed it. Then he stooped methodically and patted the dog's head. "'Good morning,' he said gravely. "'Are there any letters?' "'Yes, four, and all for you, as usual.' He smiled unobservant of the slightly tired irritability of Clodagh's tone. "'Ah, indeed,' he said. "'That is pleasant. Is there one from Sicily? Scarpio promised to let me have the latest details of the great work.' He took up the four letters and carefully studied the envelopes. As he came to the last his thin face became animated. "'Ah, this is satisfactory,' he exclaimed. "'I knew he would not fail me. What wonderful, what fascinating work it must be!' He tore the envelope open and began to peruse the letter. While he scanned the opening lines Clodagh watched him absently, but as the first page fluttered between his fingers she gave a slight involuntary shrug of the shoulders and, moving round the table, sank into the seat that the servant drew forward for her. Then, with an uninterested gesture, 
she poured out two cups of coffee. For a while there was silence save for the turning of the letter in its recipient's hand, the occasional snap of mixed teeth as he attempted to catch a fly, and the thousand impersonal sounds of lazy outdoor life that rose about them. At last Milbank looked up, his face tinged with mild excitement. "'This discovery is very remarkable,' he said. "'Sicily will obtain a new importance.' Clodagh smiled faintly. "'In the antiquarian's eyes,' she said with unconscious irony. There was no bitterness and no impatience in her voice. She spoke as if stating a fact that long familiarity had rendered absolutely barren. Looking back over the four years of her marriage, it seemed to her that her life had been one round of archaeological discoveries all time to take place at the wrong season. She vividly remembered the first of these events, the discovery of some subterranean passages in the neighborhood of Carrara which had taken place two months after her arrival in Italy, while life yet retained something of the dark vague semblance usually associated with a nightmare. Still desperately homesick and unreasonably miserable in her new position, she had eagerly grasped at Milbank's suggestion that they should visit the scene of these excavations. But with this first essay her interest in discoveries had taken permanent flight. The heat had been tremendous, the country parched and unsympathetic, the associations terribly uncongenial. She remembered the first morning when she and Nance, stifling in their black dresses, had by tacit consent stolen away from the party of fellow enthusiasts to which Milbank had attached himself, and climbing to the summit of a low olive-crowned hill had sat tired, silent, and unutterably wretched looking out upon the arid land. But that excursion had been the prelude to a new era. Visits to various antiquities had succeeded each other with dull regularity broken by long, uneventful sojourns in the green seclusion of the villa at Florence. Then the first break had occurred in the companionship of the trio. Nance had been sent home to an English school. Clodagh's acceptance of this fiat had been curiously interesting, as had been her whole attitude towards Milbank and his wishes. From the day on which she recognized that the state of matrimony was something irrevocably serious, she had taken upon herself an attitude of reserved surrender that was difficult to analyze, difficult even to superficially understand. By a strangely immature process of deduction she had satisfied herself that marriage was a state of bondage, more or less distasteful as chance decreed, a state in which, by a fundamental law of nature, submission and self-repression were the chief factors necessary upon the woman's side. As sometimes happens when there is a great disparity in years, the wedded state had widened instead of lessening the gulf between Melbank and herself. It had cast a sudden awkward restraint upon the affection and respect that his actions had kindled in her mind, while inspiring no new or ardent feelings to take its place. Ridiculously, and yet naturally, her husband had become an infinitely more distant and unapproachable being than her father's friend had been, and to this new key she had, perforce, attuned her existence. With a greater number of years, even with a little more worldly experience, she might have made a vastly different business of her life, for at the time of her marriage Milbank had been hovering upon the borderland of that fatuous love in which an old man can lose himself so completely. If in those first months 
she had permitted any of the ardor, any of the fascination of her nature to shine upon him, she might have led him by a silken thread in whatever direction she pleased. But three factors had precluded this. Her youth, her inexperience, her entire ignorance of artifice. In her primary encounter with the realities of life she had lost her strongest weapon, her frank unswerving fearlessness, and in lieu of this she had, in the moment of first panic, seized upon the nearest substitute and had wrapped herself in an armor of reserve. And on this armor the weapons of Milbank's love had been turned aside. There had been no scenes, no harassing disillusionment, but gradually, inevitably, his original attitude with regard to her, his shy reticence, his uncertainty, as in the presence of some incomprehensible quality, had returned. He had slowly but surely withdrawn into himself, turning with a pathetic eagerness to the interest that had previously usurped his thoughts. With the nervous sensitiveness that warred continuously with his matter-of-fact precision, he became uncomfortably conscious of occupying a false position, of having made an indisputable, almost a ridiculous mistake, and he had taken a blind leap towards the quarter in which he believed compensation to lie. While Clodagh, vaguely divining this, vaguely remorseful of what she scarcely knew, had held her own enthusiasms more rigidly in check, schooling herself into acquiescence with every impersonal suggestion that he chose to make. From this had arisen the pursuit of the antique in whatever corner of Europe, and whatever season of the year circumstances might decree. To Clodagh the pilgrimages had seemed unutterably wearisome and unutterably foolish, but there is a great capacity for silent endurance in the Irish nature. Quick-blooded though it may be, it possesses that strong fatalistic instinct that accepts without question the decree of the gods. The spirit of revolt is not lacking in it, but it requires a given atmosphere, a given sequence of events to bring it into activity. At two and twenty Clodagh was weary of her husband, of herself, of her life, but precisely as her father had fretted out his existence in the quiet monotony of Oristown, she had accepted her fate without thought of question. In the second year when they had travelled to England with Nance, Milbank had suggested a visit to Ireland, but this proposal she had declined. The days when every fibre of her being had yearned for her own country were past, and the idea of return had lost its savour. As she sat now sipping her coffee and gazing abstractedly down to where the hot sun glinted on the Arnaud, it seemed to her that her life, the glorious exuberant state that she had been accustomed to call her life, had drifted incredibly far away, that it lay asleep, if not already dead, in some intangible realm widely beyond her reach. She thought of Nance away at her English school, and unconsciously she envied her. To be fifteen and to be surrounded by young people. Involuntarily she sighed, and Mick, ever acutely sensitive to her change of mood, turned and pressed his cold nose against her knee. Mechanically she put down her hand and pulled one of his soft ears. Then suddenly she raised her head, attracted by an exclamation of impatience in Milbank's usually placid voice. Looking up she saw that he had opened a second letter. "'What is it?' she asked, her momentary curiosity dropping back to indifference. 
was that last intaglio unauthentic after all milbank glanced up with an annoyed expression this does not concern the intaglio he said this is from barnard david barnard who acts as my broker and looks after my business affairs you have heard me speak of him of course often an expression of interest awakened in clodagh's face well this letter is from him written from milan most tiresome and annoying it's coming at this juncture he scanned the letter for the second time i particularly want to run down into sicily before scarpio leaves and does the letter prevent you there was interest and a slight hopefulness in the tone of clodagh's voice i am very much afraid that it does but why he folded the letter carefully and returned it to its envelope because bernard is coming to venice in two days and suggests that i should meet him there venice clodagh said the word softly yes most tiresome most annoying but he thinks it an opportunity that should not be lost i have not had an interview with him since we left nance at school he came then to our hotel in london i do not think you met him no but i remember his coming to see you i remember nance and i thought he had such a jolly laugh we heard it from her bedroom the one that opened off our sitting-room with the mention of this new subject trivial though it was clodagh's manner had changed but what about venice she asked after a moment's pause will you go milbank looked thoughtful well i i, I scarcely know what to say of course i could refuse on the ground of this business in sicily but it is a question of expediency a few days with barnard now may save me a journey to london next year still it is very provoking but venice clodagh suggested and again her tone was soft more than any other in italy the beautiful city of the adriatic had appealed to her curiosity and her imagination with a quick glance her eyes travelled over the sheltered drowsy garden sloping downward terrace below terrace i should love to see venice she said suddenly i always picture it so wide and silent and mysterious milbank looked up from the opening of his third letter venice is unhealthy he said prosaically for one moment her lip curled perhaps that is why it appeals to me she said with a flash of the old insubordinate spirit then suddenly her eyes met her husband's quiet puzzled gaze and the passing light died out of her face with a hasty gesture she lifted her coffee-cup to her lips and set it down empty come along mick she said pushing back her chair and speaking with unconscious sarcasm come and let us see whether we can find any roses in the garden end of part three chapter one recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com